Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent podcast is divided in two small interviews. During the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speaker's secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts, and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team, and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. Hi, everyone. In today's episode, we'll speak with Derek Handley, co-founder and managing partner at ERABC. Founded in 2016, the New Zealand-based firm is on the mission to invest today in companies that will lead to a better world tomorrow. RVC have been backing incredible frontiers breakthrough technologies and reversing climate change startups such as Noia, Carbon Chain, Solidgen, or Wild Earth, and many other exciting companies. I was super excited to have Derek on the show, who is also an astronaut in waiting, to learn more about his unique story, which started as a global serial entrepreneur, then founder CEO of a non-profit P16 which was co-founded by Sir Richard Branson and now as an impactful investor with ERAVIS. Derek is focusing his energies on ideas at the intersection of today's societal and sustainability challenges with a creative and entrepreneurial response to all of those problems. He's driven by the belief on the amazing potential of the human spirit and that each of us are here to do something purposeful and unique with our time on Earth. During the show, Derek will give greater detail into their investment thesis, how they support founders, and how they calculate impact to drive their investment decision. 
He will also share his views on the controversy surrounding the billionaire's pay raise in the context of the climate crisis. Finally, he will highlight underdog areas in climate tech in which he sees exciting potential for investments and growth. The second part of the show, Derek will share his secret sauce that can increase your odds to fundraise successfully. You will learn some key red flags that make investors pass on deals. Lastly, you will hear the valuable tips on work-life balance for founders and investors needed to bring your best self. Derek, welcome to the show. Hi, Derek. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. We are super excited to have you here with us today for this new episode of our Investor Series. Thanks for having me. You're Happy welcome. So- from, uh, from New Zealand. Exactly. I was about to ask you, where, where are you in, in New Zealand right now? Uh, I'm in Auckland, uh, okay. which is the only real, the main city in, in New Zealand. Yeah. On the edge of it, in the bush. So uh, s- nestled in nature in a suburb called Titarangi, but close enough to the city. Fantastic. I love that country, the chance to, to go to the, the southern island and uh, really just uh, mind-blowing. I'm so happy that uh, one day, hopefully, I can pass by and visit you well, again. I'm sure. <laughs> welcome you back. <laughs> Thank you. So before we start, could you give us, uh, as we uh, usually ask, a 30-second uh, introduction about Area VC? Sure. Era VC, we invest at the frontier of deep technology and sustainability uh, to underpin our vision to accelerate uh, the world to a sustainable, uh, better future. We have two verticals. We focus on radical solutions to reverse climate change, and the uh, second vertical is uh, frontier breakthroughs for humanity. So really the people and the planet side of things. Super exciting. So let's start from the top. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about you know, your story, uh, your impressive background uh, as you're wearing so many uh, successful hats, entrepreneurs, investors, and even astronaut in waiting? which is super exciting to me. Uh, yeah. And then maybe please you can uh, you know, also share anything specific about, about you that's not uh, public yet. We always like to put the human back into the, into the show. Uh, you know, something that you like, don't, don't like, besides being a successful entrepreneur and investors. I mean, who is the real Derek Handley? <laughs> Great question. No, I mean, I love the way you say you want to put the human back into the investor. Well, we're all humans first, right? Gee, so I mean, that's where we all begin. I've always been a human since as far as I can remember. The, the, the question that's most interesting and most motivating to me, honestly, at the very at the beginning and end of it all is what does it mean to live a, a, a life? Like, what does it mean to live a good life? What is the art and science of living? That's the thing that fascinates me the most. It's the thing that's driven me the most to see what I'm capable of to try and understand who I am. And that's really been a, a, a journey um, of discovery, exploration, experimentation. And my initial you know, attempt at that was building companies as an entrepreneur. So I, you know, I study design, architecture, and finance, but built companies straight out of university. And to me, that was like a palette, like a creative uh, outlet, a creative endeavor to express what it is, something you're trying to, trying to bring in the world. And so as long as I've been you know, an adult, I've found entrepreneurship is fundamental to who I am. And I never had thought, you know, whether it's an investor or company builder or something to me, as long as you're building something, that's probably what was the DNA for me. And as I said, I went to architecture school. It's like, well, I thought maybe I'll build buildings. 
but instead I've ended up designing other things and they've included companies, nonprofits, funds, campaigns, all sorts of things. And I think that's you know been the initial uh, thread. Um, the first 10 years was really trying to find my way as a company builder. I was in the technology transition from the PC world to the mobile world. So still being at the very forefront of the change that's ahead, I think that's also part of my DNA, looking at what's down 10, 20, 30, even 100 years and starting to get passionate about what those changes might be and doing something about it. And then I drastically shifted hard into sustainability about you know 10 years ago. And so I've been an apprentice. You know, It's almost like having to start all over again in a way, being a student again, being a beginner again, uh, and I love the idea of constantly having that ability to be a beginner and be a learner. So almost a decade now, I've been in deep and committed to aligning everything in my world, personal world, financial world, uh, learning around the issues of sustainability, inequality, access. Um, and, you know, AeroVC is one, is one expression of that. You know, along the way, there's been a lot of expressions. And in the future, I think there'll be lots of other expressions. So being an investor is not something I sat down when I was a kid and said, I'm going to be. Um, but the beautiful part of it is, first of all, the thing that I don't think a lot of people realize is being a venture investor is also being an entrepreneur. You have to build an organization. It's not like you just have a pile of money and start deploying it. You're building something. It's got values. It's got a team. It has to have organizational structure. It's got all the same challenges as a startup. Um, and the beautiful thing about being an investor is you're still backing other people's expressions of who they are, which is entrepreneurship, right? So you're backing a founder, you're backing someone's dream, their DNA, everything they're putting on the line to bring something out into the world. Um, just so happens to be, we focus on things that we think really improve the state of the world, which makes it, you know, like the cherry on top. That's, that's super exciting. But did you, along this, this uh, whole journey that uh, brought you to, to Nambi uh, with RVC, uh, I mean, I saw that you you started your life in in Hong Kong, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and then you went to uh, to Harvard, uh, to MIT, so the US. Uh, you have been like a bit all over the, the world. I don't know about Europe, but uh, probably uh, you also passed by there. But along this whole experience that that you had, like, did you feel or see this any like, you know, what was your driver to jump into the impact clean or Today we call it climate tech industry. Did you get any aha moment uh, that you could define, or it's really succession? Yeah, succession? yeah it's, a, it's a very clear moment. So at, at this point in my life, I've spent roughly a third in Hong Kong, a third in New Zealand, and a third in the US. Uh, and you know, I was I moved from Hong Kong as a teenager. So growing up in New Zealand and being born in Hong Kong, it's very interesting because New Zealand, especially at the time, and still is heavily motivated by equity, equality, opportunity, nature, the environment, being fair. And Hong Kong is really like the Asian New York. You know, it's ruthless, competitive. Money essentially is, was the god of all things. And so growing up with this hybrid, I think it's not surprising that I've ended up in this kind of emerged uh, mindset. But the aha moment was very, very simple for me. Um, I had grown up building my company early on, thinking I would build it, make a lot of money, and then do some good things. And I think that's quite a traditional way to think about things. And what happened was in the 2008, 2009 recession, you know, November, December, 
that company was very, very much on the brink of collapsing. You know, I'd had to let go almost 100 people, close a lot of offices, and our cash runway was very, very short. And so it was that moment where I started to realize and come to kind of, I guess, face to face with a existential crisis, not of my own nature, but of the nature of the company that I had built. But because I was a first time entrepreneur, everything relied on that company, my identity, my ego, every asset that I had, any kind of persona that I had was tied up in this thing. And of course, all my energy. So when I realized that it might die and what that meant for me thereafter, it became this amazing awakening to think, what would I, would I do this again? Is this how I would spend another decade? What if this keeps happening and I can't build a successful company? Does that mean I won't be able to contribute to the world? Like, because I had this theory that I have to build a successful company, make some money, and then I'll do good things with it. And it became clear really quickly to me, two things. One, that model doesn't work because if you're not a good entrepreneur, you'll never be able to solve other problems in the world. If you keep thinking, when I sell my company, I'll help the world. Um, and two, I realized I had no real grasp on what I would call now the real problems. Like you couldn't talk to me about anything to do with poverty, the millennium development goals, let alone the sustainable development goals, sustainability, climate, I had no idea. And that's when I knew I had to go back and be a beginner again. And that was honestly, it happened in maybe even a day, maybe a couple of days, maybe a week. And I decided whatever happens with this company, my life will change and I will be committed to first being a learner and a beginner. And then I will do the things that I know how to do to contribute to these issues. Uh, and that's really, you know, I'm almost 10 years into that. <laughs> Fantastic. So that, that, that was a beautiful day, I would say, or at least a beautiful uh, few days. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was also some of the most frightening, right? Because, yeah. you know, in 2008, in that time, it was very scary. Like no one knew where they were going to get their next job. People were laying off people by the tens of thousands, you know, and you, you're always very frightened if you think you're going to lose your company. Um, but it was a very, it was at the same time, very frightening, but also a very peaceful moment. It's like being able to watch all the chaos with a removed sense of uh, tranquility, which I think really helped me get through it, make really clear decisions without being all caught up in the identity and emotion, like really quite brutal decisions, which saved the company, put it on an even keel, eventually rebuilt it and sold it. And so all of those things happened at once in a way that ended up becoming really, really positive. Thank you for sharing. So let, let's zoom out uh, a little bit uh, and, and go back to the uh, climate tech and climate tech ecosystem uh, today. Would you be able to give us like your overview? I mean, where are we at uh, today in terms of uh, maturity uh, of the ecosystem? And uh, I would say like what needs to happen to have this climate tech ecosystem, as we call it today, uh, in a way being mature enough to uh, be able to fully support the 2050 net zero goal, meaning like having this uh, amount of like technology company that will play that role within uh, the different uh, mix of solution uh, that can exist to reach that goal. Uh, when do you think we'll reach a, a level where uh, those companies can really start to have a, a real effect, a real dent uh, into, the, into the problem? Well, the dent is reliant on companies creating the innovations that can scale, right? The dent into the problem. But moving back from that, the creation of the environment for people to start companies, fund them, 
innovate through the vehicle of the ecosystem of entrepreneurship and venture, there has never been a better time in, in history for that, right? That's happening right now. We're in the middle of it, or maybe we're at the beginning of it. Um, it's, it's something that we have noticed really starkly since, honestly, since the Biden administration, right? So we have been investing in climate actively as ERA-VC since 2017, but it really changed sharply. Uh, you know, we have conversations with family investors, entrepreneurs, other venture investors. Most people were not interested in this discussion year on year on year in any meaningful way. And then in the last 12 months, it has shot up in such a way that everyone who is doing something mainstream is now thinking about how they might do something climate related. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's a great thing. But it also spans from the early pre-seed accelerators all the way through to the largest asset managers in the world. And so this is, again, unlike anything that I think the world has ever experienced. You know, you're talking about a moment. Again, going back to my mobile history, I started that mobile company in 2001. Basically, the only thing you could do was text message at that time. And we had this vision that mobile would become the remote control to everyone's lives. And then in Asia, they started having 3G and some sort of technology, 2003, 2004. But people kept asking, when will mobile happen? When will mobile happen? And then eventually it happened when the iPhone came out. People finally got it, right? And so that took five years or six years of us holding on for dear life to survive until that moment happened. I think for us in climate, that moment has happened. Like there is no serious, legitimate leader, investor, politician, CEO who is not already critically aware of what this is and what's facing us. And, you know, previously about 10 years ago, my first foray into the space was building a CEO alliance of sustainability thought leaders. Right? I co-founded this organization called the B Team with Richard Branson. And I had identified with him and others who are the leading CEOs who are banging this drum back 10 years ago. And back then it was a very, very different conversation right? You would look at a hundred top CEOs. It was not on their agenda. So you were struggling to find the ones who were speaking out loudly and saying, this is an issue. We all need to work on sustainability and climate. Fast forward 10 years, it's a hundred percent the opposite. If you're not leading, you are definitely on the way out and you better change your mindset or you're going to eventually, you know, lose your job, et cetera, at the very highest level of corporate leadership. So the world has changed a lot in 10 years. I think the moment is definitely now, but I think it will sustain itself for the ecosystem, for entrepreneurship, and for venture capital. And a lot of that will be, be partly driven by corporates partnering with startups to solve the problems they've got, because I don't think corporates can address a lot of the solutions as fast as you know, startups can. So do you think, because it's often the, the, you know, the, the, the remark and, and the noise, like this, this greenwashing trends of like, as I mentioned, like, as you mentioned, those, those CEOs from big corporations that feeling the push from their uh, base and from their employees and from their, their stakeholders, uh, do you feel that there's really that uh, movement is happening for good? Or are we in a bubble where now, like, there's those funds also, like, trying to, you know, uh, put, like, a, one partner in the fund with this climate, uh, climate hat? Uh, and then let's see what happened. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, we be, all remember it exploded yeah. in a way. Like all these disruptions and transformations, um, this is what happens, right? People either wholeheartedly embody and inherent the transformation, inherently embody the transformation, and it goes through the DNA and they decide to make a bold leap forward, 
or they peripherally acknowledge it, as you say, put someone in there and let's see if they can solve the problem, like create a new department or something. All these things will occur and it'll be the whole spectrum and you know, it, you can't avoid it because it's basically the different types of leadership. But from a fund perspective, you know, there's brand new funds popping up every day, looking at different climate tech uh, situations. You've got existing funds creating uh, climate tech verticals or new funds. All these things are good. You're going to have a very different level of sophistication and, and commitment across the spectrum. Um, and I think the best, like everything, the best will be found out, right? The best will, will float to the top. The weakest will, will struggle. And that's, you can't ever avoid that. And so like what you said, there'll be some that appear to be impact washing or greenwashing or whatever that might be. But that's generally because either A, they don't really get it yet. They haven't, haven't clicked. They don't really quite grasp the magnitude of the opportunity and the problem. Or B, they don't quite know yet how better to deal with it or approach it. So it's just an interim step. I don't think any of these things are bad. If you're an investor, you know, you're going to get the, the deals flows that you deserve. So people will find out immediately. And for us, you know, people know we're pretty pure play very early. We had a global view very early. And for me personally, I've had, you know, a good decade being an apprentice um, not only with the B team, but with other sustainability advisory boards, positions at university like uh, at Wharton and others, where I have for a long time now been talking about these issues, not just climate issues, but much broader issues like the B Corp movement, the overall concept of what the role of a corporation is, stakeholder concept of capitalism versus you know, shareholder primacy. These are all the things that underpin this transition. If these other things were in place 30, 40 years ago, like what is the point of a company, then we wouldn't be in these situation, the situation. But we're in this situation because we've had 40 something years of the Milton Friedman model, which is the only goal of a company is to make as much money as possible for shareholders. So when you're not penalized or disincentivized to manage, clean up, improve, you know, what the jargon is, your externalities, you end up in this shithole. And that's what happens. So the, the fundamental building blocks of what it means to be a company is why we're in this mess. And these are two parallel conversations, all the climate tech opportunities, innovation, technology, market growth is one side. But the second side is why are people even building companies in the first place? And what is the social reason for them? And these conversations I think will continue to evolve over the next decades. Thank you so much. I think this is a, a good moment to go a little bit more deeper into uh, era VC, uh, the specifics. So, can you tell us a bit more about like the story? Uh, what was your uh, thesis behind it? Uh, and in a way, what do you offer uh, to your portfolio uh, that maybe others don't? The story was pretty simple. I, um, I wanted to uh, build some new long-term asset kind of manager uh, platform that really was along the ride of this, this great transition, right? Like where I am in the rest of my life, this transition is going to be a hallmark and a characteristic of our lives. And so I wanted to play a role that had a multi-decade vision about what could I do to participate and accelerate it. And so one aspect of that was building a platform to amalgamate great capital and back founders. And it could be startups, which it is now, but it could be anything in the future. And I decided who do I wanna do that with? And my answer was I wanted to do it alongside long-term family investors, 
who wanted to transition their own investing, their own philosophy, and even their own companies that they may run. And so I decided out of a charitable trust that my wife and I had set up in New Zealand, like a foundation, we were going to incubate new projects like this, like a generational type project. And the first project that the ERA Foundation incubated was ERA VC. And it became a family-oriented venture fund. We had six families to begin with involved. Then we had 12. Now we've got about 40. And they're all from around the world. And essentially, we're a family-backed venture fund that has a global uh, community of uh, investors. We invest all around the world. And one of the unique things is that the families that back us are really interesting and they have really unique positions in the countries that they're in and the industries that they're in. So one thing that's unique for founders is that we are very able to help them transition hemispheres basically from the West to the East. If they're in the US and they're coming to Asia, we'll be able to help unlock things. If they're in Asia and they're going to the US, we'll be able to help unlock things that way as well. That's been one part of our um, DNA. Another part is because of the network that we've been building, we have very close, like it's just a couple of skips to connect people to really interesting people that might be catalytic in a founder's journey. Um, more operationally, we're just very pragmatic. You know, we are New Zealanders at heart, although a lot of our team is all over the world. We're very honest, quick, fast, no bullshit. Like we're very just shoot straight down the middle. And as a founder, having previously always tried to raise money from different parties, I found fundraising to be anything but that. It was total opposite dealing with venture capitalists and investors when I was on the other side of the table. And so we try to be, and we are, you know, very much the most practical partner or investor that you could think of. Um, and don't, you know, don't overthink things too much. <laughs> that's, that's cool. So, um, I mean, how do you source those, uh, those founders? And maybe you can, you know, share some uh, example of your uh, previous investment. I saw that uh, you invested in, uh, in Solugen, who does uh, synthetic biology. And uh, it's interesting because we spoke with, uh, recently with uh, 50 Years VC, who also invested in them. Uh, and then I saw Wild Earth uh, with Ryan uh, and Noya with Josh uh, were on the show, uh, previous episode as well. So pretty amazing people so how do you find them and what makes them special except that i'm saying that they're amazing their team maybe the market uh, i mean it's very different uh, carbon uh, capture uh, you know pet food uh, <laughs> and and then uh, synthetic biology so uh, how do you how do you de de i mean what makes them yeah. special in a way so it's kind of two questions in one right so the yeah. first question is this is 2016 you know, we say we're going to build early stage global from day one fund that's virtual from day one. So 99% of people, 99 out of 100 people say that's a stupid idea. Now, post COVID, <laughs> it's the only way, right? You can only invest over Zoom and more and more people are going internationally. So if you start with, a, with an idea that doesn't really exist, you have to build your own network, your own strategy. And so we essentially designed like a, a wedding cake. And we said, these are the layers that need to exist. At the base, it's having the most comprehensive, sophisticated network of accelerators, incubators, partners all around the world, like a one amazing, incredible spider web. That's what we, we're still building it, right? You're still building that because there's always interesting accelerators and incubators appearing. And as you said, there's more of them now that are spitting off sustainability or climate-related accelerators. That's kind of like the base. We've also got 
a network that we built of scouts. We're like, okay, you've got to find interesting people in different parts of the world who are in the slipstream of deals, relationships, communities. You have to find other co-investors who like what you're doing, who have the same DNA and can share opportunities and ideas and on and on and on. So we've kind of built layers and layers and layers. And only now, you know, a few years on, now that we have an, a really amazing portfolio of incredible founders, now you end up having this kind of inbound, right? People now recognize or see, oh, Air has been around, they've done these interesting deals. And so we start to get pretty, obviously you get lots of unqualified inflow, but you get some pretty qualified targeted inflow because people know oh, if you're investing in this kind of person, maybe you're interested in what we're doing. So that's been awesome as well because you don't get that overnight. You know, it takes a while because people don't know who you are. So uh, it's nice to be at that point how do we how do we choose these incredible people? A lot of it's hard to explain, but one of the key factors that we look to, well, there's a couple of questions, but one of them is the question of, I've always used this example in the past in sustainability where when I was a kid, it was normal to have people smoke on an airplane, right? That was normal. And so you'd go, I'd fly from Hong Kong to see my grandparents in Scotland. It'd be like 12 hours and they'd be smoking in the airplane. It's like madness. Obviously now it's not. So these kind of normal, not normal, pre and post paradigm shifts, that's almost like our North Star. Like what is the pre and post paradigm shift that this company represents? Because it could still be an amazing, incredible company that's good investment, could be a great venture investment. If it doesn't represent in itself a paradigm shift, a before and after aha moment, it's just not right for us because we are looking for these X factor before and after connects. And what that means is the founders have gravitated towards this like, similar kind of North Star. Like that's what they want to build. They want to build a pre-post paradigm shift. And so everything about them believes that. And it just, it's in their DNA. They're like, the world shouldn't be this way. It should be this way. And very specifically this way. So that's the common thread with almost all of our uh, founders. And of course, you know, we've got a portfolio that we've learned from over the first few, few years. But from, from, from now, that's the bar that we, that we set. So it's, it's difficult sometimes because you can see incredible opportunities, but if they don't fit that paradigm, they just don't fit the brand. And I think an, an era as a fund, like any startup, um, it needs to be clear about what it stands for. And, you know, I was, I was having a conversation with a, I think he's about 80, a really, really experienced venture capitalist a few weeks ago. And he was early at, at Xerox and like way back in the day. And, you know, he said the thing that a lot of funds don't understand is you do have to have a unique story and positioning, just like any other brand does that you're trying to back. And, you know, for us, the portfolio creates that story. And so you've got to be super careful as to how you keep adding to it, because everything you add to it takes away or adds to the story. Makes sense. So let's, uh, let's go back a little bit now uh, in terms of the uh, sectors. Um, we like to ask when we uh, when we have the chance to speak with a very uh, forefront uh, you know climate tech investor like you, which sector according to you is the most promising today in terms of what we call ICR or impact cash return? So meaning uh, you know building impactful companies while creating highly profitable business. Do you see any underdogs uh, sector pushed by? What I call these emerging uh, market forces? I mean, what are you the most excited about? Really? And why? Well, as you mentioned, we invest uh, uh, in Solugen. Um, 
which is just like all the stars aligning. You know, you, you can't take uh, huge credit for things like that happening. Um, they're decarbonizing the chemicals industry. That's their vision. It's one of those, you know, before and after things. Um, and we find that uh, the way I'm describing it at the moment is a lot of the stuff we have seen and that we do see has been about reducing carbon or energy or waste in the way we live. So the day-to-day -day activities of the way we live. So the process of being a human and just, just, just building your life. What I'm most fascinated at the moment with is the questions of how the world is built. So, you know, driving an electric car is the idea around using renewable energy to not use fossil fuels while you get from A to B. Living in a house where you've got software that's maybe managing your energy and your heating systems to reduce the amount of, uh, you know, wasted heat or water, whatever it is, or using a solar panel at top is about reducing usage, optimizing usage. The very difficult questions I think coming ahead are how is the world built? The concrete, the infrastructure, the steel, the design. These questions I think uh, create um, the most difficult, but also the biggest, you know, what, what you just said, ICR opportunities. And that's why I think Solugen has gone from, you know, two guys in a garage in 2017 to raising $350 million last month from, from Temasek and, and Bailey Gifford. So everywhere you look around your house, your office, the, the town, it's all, a huge amount of it is made up from carbon building blocks. These are the problems that are the next decades deep problems that I think people who crack them are gonna create giant companies that are of huge value, financially, sustainably, carbon related, all those kinds of aspects. So we're on the hunt for those kind of companies right now it's no, um, it's no secret, but you know we're looking at a lot of concrete companies. We think there'll be a huge number of winners in the concrete uh, decarbonization of concrete. There's not going to be like a situation where one winner takes all because concrete comes in so many different forms. So that's a thematic as an example. Um, but there's for everywhere there's materials and building blocks. I think uh, that's really an exciting space. Yeah, there's this, uh, this company called uh, Kerbicrete. You probably know them uh, out of Canada uh, using steel slag uh, to produce those uh, carbon negative uh, concrete blocks. Uh, they're also very exciting. Um, yeah. So I, I, I am now fascinated about like, and I would like to speak a little bit about like space. Uh, you're a, a big fan of space, a waiting astronaut, but I feel sometimes and uh, you know, space, versus climate, there's kind of like this uh, this challenge here. And a lot of uh, people uh, back on Earth, I mean, sees uh, space exploration as a maybe a hobby for, for billionaires or something that only big corporation, uh, uh, you know, are able to, to be involved to and uh, like putting satellite, okay, we're all uh, benefiting of it. But, uh, you know, there's this discrepancy between the ton of CO2 that a rocket emits uh, per flight, uh, this incredible amount of money that is poured into the, the, the space industry, space exploration uh, in itself, and it's super exciting, but uh, do you think that there is ways where space can contribute uh, to or not uh, in the fight against climate change? Or should we say maybe we should focus on the, the real problem of climate today here and forget space for, for the time that we solve uh, uh, what we have on Earth uh, as the, the most precious as the planet? 
I mean, you know, it's a great question. Like it really is a great question. And there's, it's, it's got multiple layers, right? So I think at the highest layer, humans are inherently designed or they just are explorers, right? So we as a species want to explore and continue to push the boundaries of our knowledge and our understanding of everything, whether it's under the water or whether it's out there in space. So this is a fundamental aspect of everything that's brought all the great adventures, whether it's climbing Mount Everest or whether it's creating the ability to fly. So to me, there's no practical reason or uh, argument to hold human humanity back from exploration. And I'm not you know, necessarily of the, the school that let's build colonies on Mars, but in the long arc, the multi hundred year arc of history and the future, space exploration is a fundamental aspect of what it means to be a human and what it means to live on earth. So to me, that is sufficient to underpin the exploration that is now enabled through technology, capital, money, and the ingenuity of certain people in the world like Elon and Jeff Bezos, et cetera, that are pursuing that. I think you cannot, you should not say that we have to choose one or the other. We all understand we've got problems on earth, but it doesn't mean that someone like Elon should spend his whole life solving problems on earth and not using any of his mind and his capacity in this once in a generation type of person to expand our ability to understand our role as people, as humanity, in the broader scheme of things and the broader scheme of the universe. So to me, that's kind of where you start. When you get to climate, the reality is without space, we would have very little understanding of what climate change even is. So the satellites that were launched 30 something years ago by NASA are essentially the ones that gave us the indications of sea level rises. They're the ones that enable us to track to a minute level how is the environment changing? How is climate changing? How is the sea level changing? There are new eyes in the sky that are basically tracking all of the vital signs of this planet. If we are to transition in the next 30 years through this, we're going to need as much uh, capacity to monitor and understand how we are changing or not changing the world as we take this transition, whether it's temperature change, greenhouse gas, soil moisture, glacier movements, et cetera, et cetera. All of this stuff comes from space. You know, there are more recent projects, the Carbon Mapper, the Methane Sat project. These are new satellites that are going to monitor new types of aspects of the things that we have to deal with. It's like if you're critically ill and you had to go to hospital and they don't have any of the equipment that could monitor all the variety of vital signs that are required to understand what we need to do to, to get you out of hospital. So I wonder if we weren't even exploring space, whether we would even know we're in the situation we're in and we would sleepwalk all the way through it and it'd be far too late. So the net net of both of those equations to me are that anything that accelerates, reduces the cost to build these eyes in the skies that can really help us transition, plus this fundamental exploration nature of, of humanity. To me, I think the net benefits are there. And of course, there are all these downsides, but overall, I wouldn't for a second think that we should stop doing these things uh, in lieu of all the, the upsides that, that are there. Thank you for sharing. Um, and I, I would say also, you know, I think, um, I think this is like five or 600 uh, astronauts uh, who at least went to, went to space. And they all said that uh, when you go up there, uh, your view on the world, uh, you know, when you see the, the herd from, uh, from, the, uh, from space, 
uh, changed completely. And uh, I remember watching uh, Inspiration 4 uh, on Netflix uh, recently. And you see definitely this, uh, you know, this this magic that uh, space can also sparkle, and uh, and the fact that seeing the the, the beautiful planet hurt from uh, from the outside uh, can also probably motivate people to uh, to keep an, an eye on and uh, and, and fight against uh, against climate change. So let's go back to uh, era VC. Um, in terms of uh, impact, um, do you have any like specific uh, process, uh, maybe framework or? Uh, calculator uh, speaking with uh, you know clean energy uh, venture recently they built this uh, this uh, this calculator in itself uh, for the their uh, portfolio investment and and even it's like shared to uh, to everyone uh, or do you rely maybe on on scientists or expert to validate the the tech and the, the potential uh, impact do you have any maybe specific criteria in terms of co2 or maybe social impact uh, how does it work in terms of uh, impact uh, um, yeah. you know, assessment? I think we are, you know, we're still on a, a journey in this sense. Um, we started off, you know, because I'd come off the back of really spending a lot of time in like the B Corp world and this whole capitalist re-questioning space and was probably too naive and too uh, aggressive on impact and measurement and what does it mean and what does it not mean? So in fact, you know, we created in 2016, I think it's, you know, it was the world's first like impact term sheet. So when we did a bunch of deals before we set up AeroVC, I did about 10 investments personally with the foundation and our own money. And we used this impact term sheet that we got, got people to sign. And then it incorporated, you know, several commitments. Like one was you commit to either becoming a B Corp, a benefit corp, or changing your constitution to embed the purpose, social mission. The second one was you commit to building a framework of measurement and at least have three measurements of how you're changing social or environmental measurements. The third was around uh, philanthropy and future proceeds that if you sell the company, you'd commit. Like it was like this, you know, it was a pledge. It wasn't a contract. Uh, it wasn't an actual term sheet. Anyway, as we got into the world and we started using it and people signed it, then you realize, of course, okay, it's so hard to build a company and you're like adding all these layers. <laughs> And we eventually started to realize we also attracted the wrong kind of people, the people that were mostly focused on measuring impact and producing impact reports. And that was their focus, not making a giant company to accelerate the impact. So then we dialed it all the way back and we're like, okay, we're obviously going down the wrong path here. It's not, not the wrong path in general, but the wrong path for us. So we started to trim this term sheet back and then eventually we just ditched it. We're like, okay, this is not like version one and two hasn't worked. So then we went basically back to square one. We went back to first principles and we just said, what are, the, what are the questions that we're asking? And essentially it was back to, is what this company fundamentally is doing and aspiring to do, is it heading in the right direction in terms of the change that we wanna see in the world? Are these founders driven to build a giant company to accelerate their impact? Is there one or two ways in which they think they can measure that at the moment? Is it water use? Is it land use? Is it carbon? Is it et cetera? Because the other thing that I think everyone's found is there's all sorts of different metrics to measure things. So you can't roll them up anyway. They're all custom to the founders. And if the founders aren't measuring them robustly at the moment anyway, you forcing it down their throat when they're a seed series seed founder isn't necessarily helpful. So we've evolved since then to a point where we think, you know, obviously carbon reduction is a massive uh, North Star for us. On the frontier portfolio, 
it's harder, right? We have a mental health company, we have a DNA company. You can't necessarily figure out what the impact's going to be until much further down the line. So we've become much more flexible, much more philosophical about it and practical about how you do this. In terms of the carbon threshold, this is something we're grappling with at the moment in a positive way. I think we'll come, you know, we'll land somewhere pretty soon. You know, um, early in my journey in sustainability, people started talking about gigaton removal and that being the minimum. And when I start doing the maths, it's like, wow, you have to be pretty giant to be removing gigatons. And how many gigatons do we actually need to remove? Like 50, like how many companies do you need? So I'm at the point, okay, you don't want to be zero. You don't want to be gigaton because you don't, you want to kind of be practical about it. Maybe breakthrough energy can play at the, the gigaton level what's the right level for us? And that's the thing that we're working through at the moment to say, okay, what's the threshold that a company needs to be able to believably achieve? And we go through those arguments now with science advisors, with our own modeling, and there's two parts to it. One, is the impact gonna be big enough? Two, to achieve that, is it, is it realistic? Is it practical? Like we looked at something the other day that was doing sequestration. And it became obvious that it was so impractical to get to scale. It was like requiring tens of thousands of these farms. And we thought, well, how many of these farms, like other kinds of farms in the whole world are there right now? And it was a fraction of them. So you're like, wow, you're gonna create this many farms just to remove carbon. And so we now are starting to grapple with these kind of intersection of practical feasibility. Like, is this realistic that it can be achieved at scale and impact per implementation, you know, per installation, per implementation, per product sale, et cetera. But we're not like hard and fast at the moment. I think the framework will evolve. I have like two more questions for this part and I don't know. Right, okay. <laughs> so how can the, the community help you today? Oh, I mean, that's a very generous question. Uh, well, I guess, let me think about those two things. One, we uh, continue to expand our scout network, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, South America. Um, that is interesting. I don't know who in the community might be, you know, we're, we're very open, we're very friendly people, just get in touch. Uh, we look for people who aren't necessarily venture investors at all. They're doing something else. They're specialists, they're community builders, they're in the flow of the field. So that would be fun to hear from people. Uh, secondly, you know, we're always looking for amazing, interesting companies. Um, and that's, that's really the core aspect of what we do. So those two things are, would really be interesting to hear from the community. Fantastic. Any question I should have uh, asked you and I did not for this part? No, it's great. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> cool fantastic thank you so much uh Derek. it was a it was a real pleasure uh to have you uh with us uh, thank you so much for you know your time and insights on the on the industry uh and i'm sincerely very excited to see so many uh brilliant people like uh, like you uh and and your team at uh, ravc putting so much effort uh you know to move the the, the ball towards a better and, and cleaner cleaner world so thank you Thank you, G. And also for the work that you're doing, the community that you're building, the conversations you're having, all of these things really matter and they really help. And it's really wonderful to meet people like you and see the work that you're up to as well. So thanks for including me in your story and your journey. And, um, you know, I look forward to connecting with and hearing from and hopefully working with people in your community. <laughs> Thank you.
as Guillaume again, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climate tech ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation or sponsorship to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupdscamp.org to discover more episodes like this one and get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us.